Hi everyone, welcome to the 12th episode of the ongoing series here on Svarim Chatter, Spanish Jewry Through the Ages. On this episode in the series, um, I was joined once again by Professor Jonathan Ray, and we discussed the expulsion of 1492, the Gerush Svarad, as well as post-expulsion, after-expulsion, which Professor Ray uh, wrote a book about, and what happens um, after the expulsion of 1492. So this is kind of both. Uh, talking about, you know, the lead up to the expulsion, the expulsion itself, and then after what happens after the expulsion. Uh, I know that I have teased or I mentioned, I think in some of the intros in the past couple of weeks, that I have some more on conversos and, and inquisition. I do, but I think that, and the feedback that I've gotten is we kind of spent enough time there. So I, I'll hold those and release them as regular standalone episodes as like an addendum later on, unless everyone really wants it at the end. I think it's just, we really uh, relate to it with that, with the inquisition um, so this is really that, and then this will be for this week, this episode, going forward. After this, you'll hear about 1497 next week, the the expulsion on of forced conversion slash expulsion of the Jews from Portugal five years later, 97, 98, and then we'll get on to other things. Eventually, we'll, there'll be more talk about Converso slash Morano slash New Christian in the New World, um, as well as in just in general in their community, Amsterdam, it's, you know, Hamburg, London, etc. Uh, there'll also be talk later on of the South American, the Lima Inquisition, so we're not done with the Inquisition, uh, and a couple of other things that are coming as well later on in the series. Um, I am still taking suggestions for the series. Um, like I said, uh, you know, I'm not sure what we'll still cover. Um, and uh, also, I, I should actually, I will mention this, um, if you, you know, would like to get feedback, this episode, again, it's on 1492. It's a little bit before about 1492 and after. But if you want to hear more on the expulsion, I mean, there's a lot to talk about on the expulsion. I think this is a shorter episode. We kind of try to be concise and, and talk about a bunch. But really, theoretically, there can be multiple episodes on the expulsion. So if you feel like it's a lacking, you want to hear more on the expulsion, you think there's certain aspects you think that you want to know more about that either you know about that wasn't discussed in this episode and then is leaving out or whatever, something that you want to hear more about, that you're curious about, let me know. Please email me, farmchatter at gmail.com. That's something that maybe we can do more of. Again, because after this, I'm gonna be, we're going to be moving to 1497 uh, in Portugal. Um, as always, I would like to thank the sponsor, the corporate sponsor of the series, Gluck Plumbing. For all your service needs, big or small in New Jersey, with a full service division from boiler changeouts, main sewer line snakeouts, Camering main lines to a simple faucet leak, Gluck Plumbing Service Division has you covered. Give them a call, 732-523-1836, extension 1. Again, 732-523-1836, extension 1. That information is in the show's notes as well. And uh, if you call them, please tell them that you uh, heard about that one's farm chatter on the podcast. As always, if anyone wants to sponsor an episode of the podcast, I've mentioned this a bunch of times, it's $360, you can Email me, farmchatter at gmail.com. You can chase quickpay slash zell that email address. Um, also, there's a PayPal link in the show's notes. Also, any amount you can give, $18, $25, $36, $50, wh- whatever. Whatever you want to give is very much appreciated um, to support the podcast. And I want to thank those that already gave. Also, additionally, if you haven't, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you can also rate uh, and review the podcast, especially an Apple podcast. But uh, please at least subscribe on Apple Spotify, Google Podcasts, 24 6, wherever you listen to podcasts, and enjoy uh, this next installment of the series in Spanish Jury. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Farm Chatter Podcast, another episode in the series on Spanish Jury. So, on this episode of the podcast, I'm going to join once again by Professor Jonathan Ray, who is the Samuel Ike Professor of Jewish Studies at Georgetown University. And uh, this time we'll be discussing. Uh, after Expulsion, which is the title, actually, of one of his books, After Expulsion, 1492 and the Making of Sephardic Jewry from NYU Press. But And that's what we'll be discussing as well. What happens post-expulsion, 1492? What happens to the jury, uh, Spanish jury? So thank you, uh, Professor Ray, for joining me once again. Thanks for having me, Nahi. Okay, so let's let's start off, even though, like I said, it's titled After Expulsion. Let's start off before the expulsion. What's the lead up to the expulsion of 1492? So for those of you who are somewhat familiar with the topic, the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492 really is in many ways the largest of a series of expulsions of of Jews from different communities in Western and Central Europe. And 
it really marks in many ways the end of Jewish medieval history in Europe, right? So it's it's this one of many uh, medieval expulsions that happened sort of to get the Jews out of Western and Central Europe for the most part. Um, it really begins a century before 1492 and 1391 with uh, a rash of uh, forced conversions uh, based on a series of outbreaks of a violence against the Jews and attacks against the Jews in which many Jews choose to convert rather than uh, than, than die or, or face uh, dire consequences at the hands of these angry mobs. And when the dust settles and the kings and queens of the various Iberian kingdoms regain control, you have a situation where there are these conversos, these new Christians that the rest of the Christians don't really accept. It's not quite clear uh, how kosher their conversions are, if you want to look at it that way. The Jews aren't really sure what to make of them. These are, in some families, your mom converts, your dad doesn't, or vice versa. What what do you do about that? There are, of course, halakhic answers to that, but there's a social and economic problem how to deal with this group that has one foot still within the Jewish community and one foot within the Christian community. And that question really occupies a lot of Spanish politics for the century between 1391 and 1492. What do you do with these conversos? Can you truly integrate them into the old Catholic community when they have these Jewish friends and relatives who can walk up to them in the marketplace and say, you know, uh, Jewish girls light candles today at 5.30, et cetera, et cetera, help them to stay Jewish surreptitiously. And in the end, one of the answers that uh, the king and queen of a united Castile and Aragon make is you really have to get rid of the Jewish influence if you have any hope of these conversos really integrating into Catholic society. Historians can look at that and say, well, that's a rash decision, that the problem really wasn't so much the Jews as the Catholics who didn't accept them. You're going to get rid of the Jews and still find you have a converso problem. But that's hindsight. At the time, uh, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella make this decision that um, it's best to excise this part of Spain in order to save the rest of the Spanish body politic. And uh, so in uh, in in March of 1492, Two, they come up with this decree that says uh, all Jews have to leave their kingdoms, which their territories included overseas territories as well as well at that time, uh, by August of that year. So it's it's three months. It's it's really a very short amount of time that Jews have to divest themselves of all their goods, pack up, and leave. And that short time period is is important because many Jews decide to stay in part because they say, look, uh, I can't face exile broke, right? I don't know anyone in North Africa or Italy or the, you know, the Eastern Mediterranean. Who am I going to stay with? I have no job. I, I have a family I have to take care of. Better to follow suit that some of my relatives have done in, in the last few generations. I'll convert and I'll stay as Jewish as I can, or I'll convert and I'll, I'll really convert. Uh, but many Jews decide not to face expulsion uh, at that time, but rather to convert and, and live to fight another day, so to speak, while while staying in Spain. Okay, so that's something something there that I want to explore more upon is that you said that that the, re the reason, I guess, for the expulsion was this conversal problem, uh, so to speak. And, and, and you mentioned this, a lot of other European countries had expelled the Jews, England in 1290, France... Uh, various times, Germany, various parts of Germany. So this is not a new thing to expel the Jews. Spain is actually coming to this later, so to speak. But those countries, I think, you know, not to discuss them specifically, but we're try they were getting rid of the Jews. Here, is it more that instead of getting rid of the Jews, they were trying to deal with this conversal problem? And you mentioned 1391, which other listeners be familiar with, you know, refer back to other episodes in the series, as well as uh, there was the Inquisition started to deal with this conversal problem also right in 1478. I mean, is... Is uh, but is that the reason why? Is it to deal with the conversos more than just getting rid of the Jews, or also is they want to get rid of the Jews and have just a you know Catholic, just a, a Christian uh, kingdom? Right. It's it's a huge question. These are the sorts of things that my colleagues and I talk about. Right. <laughs> that we debate about. Uh, if you read the expulsion decree, the king and queen say it's because of the conversos. Like they're very clear on this. 
some of the people who have been lobbying them to get the Jews out have a variety of motives. They don't like the their influence in the conversos, and quite frankly, they don't like them, and they don't like their competition economically. And there's a variety of reasons, right, that might overlap with reasons of why other kingdoms have expelled the Jews. And yet, you can argue those anti-Jewish reasons have been there for hundreds of years, and they never led to an expulsion. So I'm not going to say that everyone loved the Jews, but there was this problem that they might be influencing these new Christians to stay Jewish. I don't think it's as simplistic as that. But um, certainly in the Spanish context, it seems that the conversal problem was the deciding factor. And even then, the there's a series of kings and queens who try to delay that uh, that that decree for, for generations. And Ferdinand and Isabella are the first to basically agree that it's worth getting rid of the Jews to preserve the conversos. And also, they're probably the first king and queen in several generations who have the authority to actually get that done. Um, the 15th century is a series of very weak kings and queens in, in Castile and the Crown of Aragon, who even if they wanted to uh, have a national expulsion, they probably couldn't execute it. So here you have this perfect storm, at least for the Jews, where the Jews are concerned, um, a motive, a popular support for that motive, eventually royal support for the expulsion, and a king and queen who have an organized bureaucracy that can actually oversee this expulsion. Now, as mentioned, there were expulsions from a bunch of other countries in Europe. So why is this one kind of, this is the one everybody knows, everyone on the street kind of knows, oh, 1492, expulsion. Why is this the one that sticks out in everyone's mind? What is special, quote, air quotes, you know, not special about it, but, you know, why is this one more, more infamous? It's an interesting question. Um, I think in part, this is one of the largest expulsions. It's the last one, right? Um, it happens in... Um, a dramatic fashion at a dramatic time, 1492, at least for fans of American history know this is also the year that Columbus set sail. So uh, in your in your general history textbook, when they say, when does the Middle Ages end? A, a common date is 1492. That's when we discover, uh, the Europeans discover a new world and in many ways open up a new era in history. So there is this overlap between Jewish and general Western history at this time. Uh, it is the largest community. It was at the time the wealthiest and in many ways um, most uh, active, prolific, intellectually prolific community uh, of 1492. That's not to say that, you know, there aren't great losses uh, in French Jewry, German Jewry, English Jewry, etc. But th there's something that captures the imagination of the Spanish expulsion. This was sort of, in many ways, the most storied uh, medieval Jewish community in Europe that uh, that was the last one to go. Okay, now let's talk a little bit more about the expulsion itself, the decree. I mean, I know you mentioned it, but you know, talk, I want to talk a little bit more about what the decree said and how that process played out. I know there's, I mean, again, something that a lot of people know. Another famous thing you can mention is the Barbanel and his role there, what he played in, in here. So how that all, the expulsion itself and the decree, you know, played out. So the decree really is uh, convert or leave, right? There's this, uh, if you would like to stay, and we hope that you do, you have to accept Christianity, right? There's this notion that it's not just everyone has to leave, but um it's an exile of Judaism more than it is Jews, right? Uh, if you wish to convert, you are welcome to stay, and many Jews do choose to convert and stay. We have Jew Jewish statesmen like Isaac Barvanel who lobby on behalf of the Jews to, to stay the hand of, of this dec decree. Uh, it doesn't work. Um, others, uh, many other famous Jews at the, at the royal court decide to convert. Instead of leaving, Abravanel perhaps becomes a hero because after failing to convince the king and queen, he accepts uh, expulsion for his family, whereas some of his colleagues do not. Uh, and the, the argument probably could go that the king and queen don't care about the Jewish tailor from some small town. They care about the wealthier Jews who um, are at the royal court, who play a role in their circle, um, who are advisors, who are tax collectors, etc. And their argument is, oh, for goodness sakes, just convert and stay. Uh, why would you accept expulsion? 
And some of them, in fact, do. Some of that argument does work. Uh, for many of the Jews who've gone through at least a century of uh, increasingly problematic uh, economic times, there are all sorts of measures placed on the Jews to restrict their movement within Spanish society. It wasn't like one day things are great and the next day they're expelled. But the expulsion is really the exclamation point after a long series of uh, anti-Jewish measures over across the 15th century. Okay, so we'll discuss a little bit more about some of the conversos perhaps later, but we'll leave that to other episodes. Uh, the main thing here is to discuss the the exiles and again some of some of those conversos as well. So, but not we're not going to focus on the conversos left in Spain. So, how many left, uh, and where did they go? So, the exact demographic numbers are difficult uh, for for the pre modern world. Um, we know probably the majority of people who are Jewish when the decree is made end up going. A significant portion, whatever that might be, do convert and stay. Um, the majority of the exiles at this time probably come from Castile, with the larger communities in the crown of Aragon having been somewhat decimated over the last century since the conversions. Um, if you look at a map of Spain, Castile is the part of Spain which is really in the central and western part of Spain. And as might, might make sense, uh, they go to the nearest place they can go to. So those in the north cross over into the small mountain kingdom of Navarre, which is part of Spain now, but is independent at the time. Um, they cross in the west over into Portugal. The king and queen try to control these passages. Uh, so there are three official crossing spots you're supposed to cross. But as people familiar with border crossings today, there are people who are smuggling their families across the border in places where they're not supposed to cross. Uh, and in so doing, not paying an uh, exit charge. You're supposed to uh, pay to leave the kingdom. Uh, not a, a lot of these people have the money for that. So uh, they're trying to control this exodus. Uh, they're somewhat successful in that regard. So they go to Navarre. They go to Portugal. Those in the crown of Aragon, which are on the eastern or Mediterranean coast of what is today Spain, do leave in certain ports, just like there are crossing points in the West on land. There are certain ports designated where Jews are supposed to be leaving on certain ships. And so some of them attempt to go to Italy and North Africa, two places that are still taking Jews. As you mentioned, they're expelled from France at that time. So France isn't a safe haven for Jews. Uh, the Western coast of Italy is, the North coast of North Africa is. But one of the things that Jews find is a problem is not everyone wants to accept the Jews. Just because technically your city or your country is allowing Jews to enter, that doesn't mean they want a bunch of Jewish refugees showing up at the same time. And so there are ships that sail to Italy and they start in Genoa and they work their way down the coast. And some Jews are able to disembark in particular places, but there are quotas. Not every city doesn't want to take a bunch of impoverished refugees. And so by the time you reach Naples, you reach sort of the end of, of the, the, the line there on the western coast of Italy, uh, you're really having Jews who have been on these ships for a very long time. They're hungry. Uh, there's a lot of disease on these ships. Um, they're not quite clear whether they'll be able to bribe their way into the next city or not. And in the end, some of these Jews end up giving up, converting, and returning to Spain. Right. And, and Naples itself wasn't a uh, safe haven for very long. Robin El goes there, he ends up having to leave there. And so that's not, wasn't, it's not a safe haven for Jews for, for um, very long. So, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, the refugee crisis is, uh, we have that going on, ongoing in the 21st century. And there's many stories, uh, you know, harrowing tales about what, what that's like, even today. Uh, so one can imagine what it's like in the 15th century for these refugees as, you know, what are the conditions? We have any idea what the conditions are like for them and what happens to them? What What's that experience like? Yeah, so we do have um, some chronicles that are left over, some personal accounts that give us some insight. Uh, some of these things might be able, you might take them with a grain of salt or some poetic license, and they're trying to, to paint a picture of tragedy. They might not be exactly historically accurate, but the sense we get is, you know, um, no one wants an impoverished horde of refugees in their city. Um, many of these cities have 
problems with poverty and disease anyway. North Africa, there was a plague. Here we are in a time of, of pandemic. We, we can sort of imagine there's a, there's a sense that um, disease is, is rampant within North Africa and eventually within Italy as well. These foreigners coming in from ships, there's there's all sorts of theories. They're bringing the disease. They're the cause of the disease. We should stop these ships of foreigners we don't know, you know, docking in our city. And so um, at best, if you're lucky, you get to go into a crappy neighborhood in a disease-ridden city. <laughs> and if you're not lucky, uh, you stay on the diseased ships for, for an indefinite amount of time or you are um you're let off the ships and you have to make your own way to these cities some of them are walled cities where uh you're locked out of the cities so you're staying we have accounts of people staying in north africa in the desert uh where it gets very cold at night um and they're burrowing into these garbage heaps for warmth um so you can imagine the life is is sort of uh, of of people living in these makeshift refugee camps not able to enter into these cities um picking over garbage heaps for food, sleeping in them for warmth, um, and wondering whether it might not be better to just convert and go home where they had a house, where they had, you know, a job. And that's all waiting for them. All they have to do is leave Judaism. Right. Okay, so uh, a couple of things. And you mentioned, I think, some of the, the chronicles. First of all, I, I don't know if you want to wait. In the, in the book, you discuss uh, Inquisition documents of Luis de la Isla, I don't know if I'm butchering his name. You look at that as like a microcosm of the situation. I don't know if you want to talk about him or you mentioned other, you know, chronicles. There's a number of them written uh, that talk about this. And if you can mention what they are for those interested or what exactly they kind of just talk about. So there's a, there's a handful of chronicles from the 15th to the 16th century. Uh, Abraham Saba has something called Zerohamor. Uh, Elijah Kapsali, who's a Jew living in in the Greek uh, part of the Mediterranean in the Ottoman lands uh, writes uh, his own sort of family history, Seder Aliakozuta. Um, two Jews of Iberian provenance, Yosef Cohen and, and Solomon Ibn Verga, write Emek Habacha and Shevet Yehuda, respectively. They're not about the expulsion per se. These are histories of their Jewish family or history of the Jews of their time in which they plug in. And this was the time when this great, you know, Shmad happened, this great tragedy happened against the Jews of Spain. And they give us a little bit of historical data uh, mixed in with, with their chronicles. So uh, we get a little bit of a sense of, of what's going on from those chronicles, as well as from yeah archival sources, sources by the Inquisition uh, and other places. Right. There's also uh, Osk, Salomon Osk. Is that his name? His, uh... Salomon Ushkwe, right. He was a Portuguese Jew. Yes. Yeah, I knew I was probably wasn't pronouncing it right. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. His, his is, uh, he's been translated to English now, right? The, yeah, the Consolation for the Tribulations of Israel. Um, the Portuguese, we haven't really talked about this. The Portuguese angle here is a really interesting one. So if there's one country that takes the bulk of the refugees, it would probably be Portugal. That's the, the largest number end up. Um, going to Portugal, walking over land, and settling among the Portuguese Jews. Now, Portugal, then as now, is an independent kingdom. They have their own independent Jewish community. They could say that the Spanish Jews weren't the last Jews, you know, around. It was the the Navarrese and Portuguese Jews, which are the last large groups of Europe before they get expelled. Um, so they they move in and they join this Portuguese Jewish community in, in 1492. And immediately the king and queen of Spain start lobbying the king of Portugal. Hey, we didn't kick out our Jews so that you could take them in. We we want them completely gone. We want them off the peninsula. We don't want them to be able to travel for work and visit these, these conversos back in their home cities. So they're, they're trying to get them expelled not only from their lands, but from their neighboring lands as well. So they start lobbying the, the king of Portugal to expel the Jews. The king of Portugal is thinking about this. He says, well, you know, if I expel these are I have a windfall of new uh, labor and new potential, at least at the higher end of the, the social order, potential tax gatherers and advisors. Why would I just get rid of this windfall? Um, and he decides rather than expel them, he's going to convert them. So although he draws up an expulsion decree, it never really gets implemented. And in 1497, he, he issues another decree, which is all right, from this day forth, if you're in my country, you're Catholic. So he basically, by royal fiat, ends 
open Jewish life in Portugal. So both the Portuguese Jews had always been there, and the newcomers from Spain who had joined them are now summarily converted to Catholicism. So the bulk of the exiles really go from, you know, the the, the pot into the fireplace, right? Um, and one of the fascinating things about this is that these are Jews who, against all odds, left their homes rather than convert. And now you're going to forcibly convert them. Their attitude is you can put any royal decree you want. I'm not leaving Judaism. I'm going to I'm going to play along if you want me to. I'll say that I'm Catholic. I'll, I'll go to church. But I really don't have that much of an interest in completely abandoning Judaism. These are the really hardcore Jews who, who you know, decided to stick to the religion, even if it meant exile. And so they begin blending with this Portuguese Jewish community. We start speaking of a Hispano-Portuguese community, a blended community from that time forward. And um, their converso group is somewhat defiantly crypto-Jewish, right? They, it, and I say crypto sort of in small quotes. They're they're not making any bones about this. Like, you can call me Catholic. You can make me go to church. You can't make me stop practicing Judaism. Right. And that the, a lot of these, this community becomes the Spanish-Portuguese community that's all over, ends up in Amsterdam and everywhere else. And you know, we'll have more episodes on that. I also want to say a very nice summary on the, on the, the Portuguese situation. Um, listeners also stay tuned. I have an episode with Professor Francois Sawyer on the Jews, specifically of Portugal and what happens in Portugal in 1497 uh, and before and after. Also, another thing about Portugal is that there is no Inquisition until 1537. So not only are these the hardy Jews, they want to stay with Judaism. There's there's no Inquisition. So there's, you know, the king there, again, stay tuned for the other episode, but he's, no one's checking on them. So they can really, you know kind of stay Jewish as opposed to Spain that does have an Inquisition. Now, there are listeners will be familiar with other ep- with uh, episodes on the Inquisition, but just to touch on the Inquisition here uh, yeah. in Spain. So I, and we can touch on the Jews who, so like you said, we had, you mentioned earlier, we have the Jews who stay in Spain and they convert. Uh, they're kind of, you know, stuck or whatever it is, they, they convert. Now, what happened? How does the Inquisition that, again, is from before, the Inquisition is not established now. It's a prior uh, thing in 1478, 1480. How does the Inquisition play into these now, this mass kind of, let's call it, you know, forced conversion and the expulsion of 1492? Right. So you can argue that in 1392, or just after, in the wake of the initial mass conversions, you could say, okay, Mom and dad didn't want to convert, but they did. Maybe the the path of least resistance is just to just to become Christian, just to join them, right? Certainly, the first few years after 1391, it might seem that uh, it's so hard being a Jew at this particular point in Spanish history. Maybe we should just embrace conversion and you know make our lives easier. The problem is not all of their new neighbors want them to be Christian. And so on the one hand, you said, wait a minute, mobs came to our house. They said, be Christian or else. So we became Christian. And now you're saying, you don't want us as, as Christian, or you don't believe that our, our Christianity is, is uh, legitimate. So the Jews who convert in 1492 have a century of experience here, including the establishment of, an, of, of a, this body of the Inquisition that will investigate whether they're really keeping Christianity correctly or not. And there's a sense of, you know, my great-great-grandfather might have thought there was hope of becoming Catholic. I now realize it's no it's no panacea, right? There's no, there's no way to convert easily in Spain. And so, okay, if I if I convert, I'm really understanding that I'm going to be investigated with the way other Christians won't be. I will be harassed as a new Christian, the way old Christians won't be, that no matter what I do, they're still going to look at me as Jewish. So, and and we have Spanish clerics writing about this saying, hey, we can't have the Inquisition harassing, harassing all of these new Christians. None of them are going to want to stay Christian. They're all going to leave and return to Judaism someplace else because we're not really making it easy for them. And in fact, that's that's kind of what happens. A lot of these new Christians realize they're going to be treated as Jews whether they're Jewish or not. And it's perhaps best to leave when they can and return to Judaism elsewhere. And so we get over the course of the first half of the 16th century, 
Jews fleeing really, or the conversos fleeing the Inquisition and returning to Judaism in North Africa, in the Ottoman Empire and other places. Okay, and then, you know, over here, I'm going to say once again, I will say this too many times, stay tuned for more episodes, you know, specifically discussing conversos. So going back to the expulsions, the Jews leaving. So as you mentioned, they go around North Africa, Italy, I don't know if you mentioned the Ottoman Empire, and they're, they're you know, Naples, we mentioned. So what happens... Uh, first of all, what what is the effect of this forced migration? I mean, there's suddenly people running all over the place in the whole Mediterranean. I mean, how, what does that do? Right. The Jews leaving Spain aren't the only refugee group at the time. And it's a time of both great forced migration and tragedy and refugee uh, life, but also a, an era of great opportunity for those who know how to find it. There's increased maritime trade. There's uh, there's there's warfare and piracy that's going on, which has both a tragic side and a you know a sense of economic opportunity. Um, there's a lot of uh, disturbance throughout the the Mediterranean, and the Jews of Spain are cast into this. Many of them suffer terribly, and we have accounts of them suffering terribly. Others are able to really build communities on the fly, communities that are not based just on your city, which is the normal medieval model, right? You're a Jew living in Toledo. You're part of the the Kehillah of, to, of Toledo, and you pay your taxes with them, and you probably live most of your life in and around Toledo. Now, forced to leave the nest, right? Forced to travel and forced to not stay in any one place for a long time, right? The, the situation of the refugee is that if you find a place to land, chances are it's not for long. As you said, Abravanel goes to Naples, and then a few years later has to leave Naples. And he's a a, a wealthy, well-connected guy. You can imagine that the, the more impoverished people stay even less time. It's hard for them to bribe their way into new communities. They're not attractive uh, settlers. And so we have these, what in another era would be called Luftmenschen, right? We have these, these traveling beggars really cast from one city to another. Um, looking for communities. And so it takes generations for some of these Sephardic communities to reconstitute themselves because they're constantly on the move. Some of them are on the move going from one opportunity to the other, but the majority of them are on the move just trying to hang on. So I do want to talk about these communities um, and what happens. But before that, also, there's there's kind of like enslavement of Jews, right? There's uh, Jews being taken and sold into slavery as well. Right. Now, from a Jewish point of view, that's a part of the Jewish history of the time. It's really a larger Mediterranean story in that there's a great a great problem, I guess you could say, of piracy in this, this era. And we might think of Caribbean piracy from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies and the swashbuckling era. This was more like okay, we need people to row these galleys, right? We need to, we need strong labor. And so if I attack your ship. Any you know strong-backed male is going to be chained into the galley of my ships or sold into slavery or indentured servitude for a, a, a period of 10, 20 years in order to have free labor, essentially. And so others are, are sold into slavery uh, to be part of uh, military expositions. They're dragooned into, into various militaries. And so this is this is warfare and piracy slash trade. For much of the 16th century Mediterranean, you would uh, you would raid cities or raid ships for wealth, but also also for labor, and so the Jews are caught up in this, right? Uh, uh, and very often, if you are um, dragooned into rowing a Catholic or a Muslim ship, uh, you are made Catholic or Muslim forcibly. So there are, there are all sorts of problems that the Jews have to navigate to try to avoid during this period. Okay, now we talked about how they would go to, again, Africa, Italy, Ottoman Empire, other places. Are there specific patterns to why they went one place over the other? No, they just went basically wherever they could go, and they went to all these communities. So the, you go where you can go, but you sort of follow uh, maritime routes. So if the sh- you're on a ship, you will go where the ship takes you, and there, there are certain uh, routes that they, those, these sh- ships take as far as uh, where the, the, the shipping lanes are. Um there are overland caravan routes as well. There are travel and trade routes, and you would follow along with the flow of trade. Uh, so you walk down the road, whether that be a, a, a sea route or an overland route, and you try the next town down the line. And as 
this diaspora of Sephardic Jewry unfolds, there becomes sort of an informal uh, information network. You go into a city and they say, I hear there are jobs in this place, or I hear there are Jews from your town in that place. You might try it. And so Jews begin to create these sort of informal uh, informational networks uh, that help them reestablish themselves, at least for periods of time, in one place or another. But yeah, more or less, you're following the the trade routes of, of, the, of the period that are not cut by warfare at that particular time. Okay, so let's talk about the communities. You mentioned this already before. So what happens to these communities established in these various places? I know there's, there's various because they're very different, right? You have Ottoman Empire and, and Istanbul, or, and then you have in, in, in Africa, and you're having in Italy. They're all over and other places. So what happens in, in, they're in the islands? Uh, but what, what's going on in the communities? Uh, first of all, was there a distinct, you know, Sephardi, Sephardi kind of character slash community before 1492, or is it not the case? I mean, there was no Spain as a country, really. So, but was, so there were different communities, different areas. But was there sort of, if we can say, one sort of kind of distinct Sephardi kind of community? Was there such a thing? And did they take that with them and stay like that in their new communities? So there really isn't the universal Sephardi community in that someone from Saragossa and someone from Zamora would both say, I'm a Sephardi Jew. There are cultural characteristics that they shared. And when they show up in North Africa, the similarities that existed between two different parts of Spain become more important, right? Because you think of an American, maybe a New Yorker and a Texan don't have that much in common. But if they both end up in North Africa, whatever commonalities they have as Americans um, come into play perhaps more than they would back at home. Um there are certain intellectual traditions that they share throughout Spain, but mostly people thought of themselves as I'm a Jew from Castile or I'm a Jew from Toledo. They had city and regional identities. They paid their taxes locally with city and regional uh, uh, tax groups. There was an awareness that there were Jews in the crown of Aragon and maybe you traded with them and maybe you had some relatives there. So it wasn't that they were completely isolated from each other in Spain, but it wasn't like we are all Spanish Jews together quite either. And even in the first and second generation, you see uh, by the names of some of these synagogues that are established, these are, it's the Aragonese synagogue or the, you know, the Lisbon synagogue. Chances are someone from Aragon wouldn't join the Lisbon synagogue in Rome. They join, right, the Aragonese Jews. Now, if you show up in some place and there is the local Egyptian Jews, and then the Lisbon synagogue, let's say. Hey, you're a Jew from Spain, you're like, well, the closest thing to what I know is the Lisbon synagogue. It's not exactly what I want. I wish they had a Castilian synagogue here, but I'll take Lisbon because that's closer than this, you know, Arabic-speaking uh, community that, that exists here in, in, let's say, Cairo. So very often in those first few generations, you look for what American Ashkenazi Jews would call a sort of Landsmannschaften, like people from your hometown are close enough to your hometown. And in larger cities like Istanbul, like Salonika, like Rome, uh, you had these different communities reconstituting themselves, the Aragonese and Catalan Jews here, the, you know, the Castilian Jews there, the Portuguese Jews across the street. Eventually, over time, those different groups blend together to form Sephardi or Spanish and Portuguese communities. But it takes several generations for that to happen. Right. I mean, you have this, like, in Istanbul, I think, in the, in the parts of the Ottoman Empire, there were Romanio Jews with Romanio Nusach, and that ends up going away. That doesn't exist anymore, and it becomes Sephardi, so to, so to speak, just to use an easy term. Uh, yes. This, over there. Now, I know, now, what about their their dress, their menhagim? They really stuck to them. I know in Istanbul, talking about Istanbul, there is the... Uh, that work that was published uh, 100, 150 years ago from manuscript Kavod uh, Chachamim, right, from uh, David Messer Leon. There's a controversy about the dress over there with Messer Leon's son, the, about the, I, 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 don't the specific, I don't remember called the specifics, but as far as they're dressing a certain way, and they're, I mean, how, did they, but do they all stick to their dress and their menhagim? So, yes, in that, in that first generation, you stick to what you know, you stick to what your father's community was, essentially. Your grandchildren were going to blend things. Your grandchildren are going to blend your grandfather's community and my grandfather's community together. And so what is Sephardic in the Ottoman Empire 100 years later is a blend of Castilian and Aragonese and Portuguese stuff, both, um, you know, prayer tunes and customs 
uh, and dress, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the Jews in North Africa think the, you know, the Spanish Jews dress funny. The Spanish Jews stick to their dress for generations, interestingly enough, uh, as a way of marking themselves apart from the Arabized Jews of, of what is today Morocco, let's say. Um, but to the Moroccan Jew, anything not from Morocco looks Spanish. To the Spanish Jews, they see, well, actually, my clothing is slightly different from my neighbors from Castile because I'm from Aragon. And eventually those two types of clothing will blend into a, a particularly Sephardic looking thing. Okay, now in, in the book, you talk about, I don't know if you emphasize this enough here, you talk about some kind of, kind of like an imagined community that they create. Is that from your, your Landsmannschaft, the type of thing that you're discussing? Right, so, Is that what happens? So in that first generation of immigrants who can remember the old country, they can tell you, we never used that food. We never used that, that tune when we prayed. Um, the people from four towns over did. That's a typical northern way of doing things. Two or three generations later, all that stuff's blended and it just becomes Spanish, right? Um, so Ladino as a language or Judesmo or Spanol, it's called different things, becomes this sort of blend of Castilian and Aragonese and Catalan and Hebrew and other things. So that um, you might say, well, here in, in Istanbul, my family speaks Spanol. We speak Spanish. And Maybe someone in North Africa says, oh, yeah, well, my, my family speaks Spanish. We speak Spanish. It's a different sort of Spanish than the one in Istanbul. And both of them might be different from the one currently being spoken in Spain because it's a blend of different immigrant communities over a few generations. But, of course, we think of Americans. People call themselves in New York. Italian-Americans, Irish-Americans, they don't speak Italian. They've never been to Ireland. They're talking about five generations ago, someone came from that old country. But those identities are really important. Like in New York, someone who calls himself Italian, even though he doesn't speak Italian, hasn't been to Italy ever, that's a really important identity for him as a New Yorker. In the same way, in Istanbul, someone's saying, hey, um, you know, I'm Sephardic. That means something to them. Even if they've never been to Spain, their Spanish isn't that good. Most of it's really Portuguese, right? But you can't tell them that. To them, they're Sephardic. So you blend this sort of community that imagines a past that was more unified than perhaps it was. Sewing together these little bits and pieces of Andalusian tradition, Castilian tradition, Portuguese tradition, et cetera, et cetera. Right, I'm sure this will make some uh, Sephardi listeners annoyed, and they'll email me or you. But I, I, kind of the so the Sephardi kind of Jew, whatever experience that kind of you're saying it kind of like comes together, it blends together over time. Right, and it, it's not that they're completely inventing things that were never there, but they're they're it's a patchwork. It's a patchwork, just like Ashkenazi Jewry in America. Right, you have. People who were once upon a time Galicianas and Litvaks now intermarrying where they probably wouldn't originally in the old country. And they see themselves as Ashkenazim in America. And there's not this sense of, oh, but you came from Galicia and I came from you know this town or that town in, in the Pale of Settlements. Those towns had meaning. Those differences had meaning in the old country. 150 years later in, in Brooklyn, that meaning is lost. And now what's what's been created out of those roots is a new Ashkenazi uh, tradition. Yeah, you could even throw in the Hungarians and even some Yekis. Exactly. German. It's, it's all together. Right, exactly. Same type of thing. And then it creates this kind of Ashkenazi jewelry or it all, all comes together. Okay. Uh, like I said, we'll leave in the conversos, but I do want to just touch on them. These, I don't know, we touched on, we mentioned the community. I don't know if we mentioned the conversal networks or extensive networks that developed over the 16th century, but also... I mean, there are those that return to Judaism, and how do those factor in these Spanish Portuguese, um, you know, come back to Judaism? How does how does that factor in? Especially how does that factor in for what we're discussing to the communities, these Sephardic communities of the exiles that went to all these countries, and we just, just as we just mentioned, they become this kind of Sephardic communities. These these re, these returnees the, from uh, from the, these former conversos being. What happens to them? How do they do they create only their own communities? Do they ever do they impact the Sephardic communities? Do they merge together? Sure. So in some places, um, the people who end up leaving Portugal are the primary Jewish immigrants. So you mentioned Amsterdam. Most of the people who later become Jews in Amsterdam from the Sephardic world 
are almost all Portuguese or Spanish and Portuguese, people who pass through Portugal to get to Amsterdam. In Salonika, there are a lot more Jews who leave in 1492, make their way to, to the Eastern Mediterranean, settle in Salonika, and never pass through Portugal. So there are some communities that are almost all former conversos, and some communities that are mostly Jews who never become conversos, and then some communities that have, you know, some members who left directly in 1492 as Jews, and some who spent two or three generations in Portugal get converted and only then join the Sephardic diaspora. Those former conversos and never have been conversos don't always blend well together. And you can imagine why. You say, my family accepted privation. We left Spain without a dime because Judaism was more important to us than anything. Your family converted, you abandoned us for money, for a job, because you didn't, right, et cetera, et cetera. So there's casting aspersions on both sides. The problem is, you know, well, there are several problems. Halakhically, if someone says, we were anusim, we were forced to convert, and at, and at the first chance we could, we return openly to Judaism, the rabbi is going to say, look, a Jew, even though he sins, is still a Jew. Uh, and we have to accept this person into our communities. Socially, the average Jew might say, Rabbi, I understand what you're saying, but this guy's an SOB. I don't trust him. He's not even circumcised. I don't like the fact that he hasn't known an, a, a real Jewish community for three generations. I don't want him in my synagogue. And we have examples of this. We have, you know, uh, who should take precedence? Who should be able to sit closer to the Bima? Some of these Portuguese Jews who only two weeks ago were conversos are quite wealthy and they can come in and an influx of funds. They build a new, you know, Bet Knesset, right? They build a new uh, uh, place to, to gather. And the, the, the other Sephardic Jews say, well, they want to be Jews. They've come. So they're a little bit late. So they, so they accepted Christianity for a few generations. We welcome them in their donations. Other people find this to be very upsetting and saying, you know, my father helped build this little synagogue. And now just because these guys are going to put a new roof on it, um, I can't sit in the front row anymore. You're going to give them, you're going to sell the bench in the front row to them. So there's all sorts of uh, tensions that exist between the former conversos and the never have been conversos to Fardim. Okay, so... Really, uh, there's obviously more to talk about. And I, as I mentioned, uh, stay tuned in forthcoming episodes for Portugal, 1497, and Conversos and things like that. But um, 1492, how do we view that? Was this the end, as you said, the end of Sephardic Jewry, even though you have Portugal Portu Portugal, and Navarre? But so to speak, is that the end of the Sephardic Jewry or, and or is this the beginning of this new type of Jew, of new type of blended kind of Sephardi Jew or what we see today or later on as a Sephardi Jew? I mean, I think it's really the latter. I think if you were to look at Spanish Jews or Jews in what is today Spain in 1491, you would look at a, a diminished community, diminished through conversion, um, one that's suffering economically, one that no longer plays a particularly important role in Spanish life. Uh, one that's trying as best it can to keep its cultural heritage alive, although against odds. And although the process was terrible, the the, the expulsion and what comes after it, the decades after it were, were terrible to live through, what eventually comes out of it, the resilience with which the Sephardic Jews are able to build these um, international trading networks, um, international intellectual networks, um, uh, printing presses, all of these things in which they sort of enthusiastically recreate Spanish Jewish culture in a new way leads to, as you say, Amsterdam being connected to, to New Amsterdam, to these Jews in the New World. They We have these trading dynasties that really encircle the globe by the end of the 16th century. This is a golden age of Sephardic uh, trading networks, that money helps to support intellectual networks. We see this as sort of a revival of Jewish Kabbalah in um, Sfat and in other places around the world. We see it as a revival of Spanish-style 
halakhic manuals blending together with other things. So Yosef Karo uh, of Sephardic ancestry, uh, would he have had this uh, this book, the Beit Yosef, right? In the Shulchan Aruch, it's sort of digest. Would that have been created if they all stayed in Spain? And even if he had written it, would it have had the impact it did, right? If you're not talking about a 16th century context in which he's part of a larger global community now with networks far and wide, would the Shulchan Aruch, which we just accept, became a really popular manual? Would it have had the delivery system it, it had had they stayed in Spain? We don't We don't know, right? Perhaps not. Perhaps they would have been a localized Western Mediterranean community. Right. So, I mean, it's a very interesting point. Even though this is a terrible event, there is something positive that does come out of it. Um, okay. I mean, I think, like I said, there's a lot more to talk about, but a very uh, interesting and nice overview, I hope. So I will link to your book after expulsion in the show's notes. Is there any other suggested reading if listeners want to read more about this? Sure. There are there are a couple of really good books on this. Uh, there's a classic tale uh, by... Miriam Bodian, known as uh, Hebrews of the Portuguese Nation, which she looks at the conversos in particular in the Sephardic diaspora. Um, Francesca Trivellato has a lovely book on uh, on economics during this period called The Familiarity of Strangers, which looks at trade networks. Um, Ronnie Pirellis uh, looks at the Sephardic Atlantic, and he talks about uh, their, their literary heritage in a book called Narratives from the Sephardi Atlantic. Uh, a, a similar look at Sephardic literature in the Ottoman context uh, is David Wax's uh, Double Diaspora in Sephardic Literature. So all these books give you a sort of sense of the, the economic, literary, communal <clears throat> recreation of a Sephardic world uh, out of one of the worst periods in, in Jewish history, which, you know, if you would like to look at it that way, is a, is a nice sort of reminder that in the darkest days, Jews have this knack, this ability to, to create something meaningful. Okay, I linked to those those books. I will mention with uh, Professor Trivellato, I did, uh, discuss, there's an old episode with her on the Jews of Livarno. So it's based loosely on the book. We actually didn't get into as specific in the network. The book is very interesting, as you say. So it, there's much more in the book than the podcast. Uh, Professor Perella is also an interesting book. Stay tuned. I have an episode recorded with him. So that'll be on about the book. I'll, I'll release that, add that here to the series. Very interesting. The book is, like you said, really interesting. And as, uh, you know, mentioned others, there's your other books as well, with people more interested in Spain, as we discussed the last time. And uh, people can check those out as well. And uh, thank you, Professor Ray, for joining me once again. Thanks, Naki. It's always fun.